electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast Easy Come, Easy Go. Stocks soaring at the open after a better-than-expected CPI print, but major markets close with more of a sputter than a surge, so has the prospect of soft inflation, as one of our traders said, started to lose its luster. Plus, fashion forward, the companies behind Coach and Michael Kors are teaming up to take on the luxury giants, what a deal means for Tapestry and Capri and the rest of the retail space. And shares of EV tollmaker Archer Aviation have been on a tear this year. The company signing a deal with the Air Force earlier this week and just reported earnings. We've got an exclusive interview with CEO Adam Goldstein later this hour. You won't want to miss that. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and our guest trader for the hour, Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital Markets. Welcome, Lori. And we start off with that muted reaction to the market's inflation report, this morning's inflation report. The Dow coming out hot out out of the gates, rising as much as 455 points early in the session, but losing steam throughout the day, closing up just 50 points. The S&P and Nasdaq following similar trajectories. The benchmark index up just a point. The reversal is coming despite the fact that consumer prices rose less than expected in July, up 3.2% from a year ago versus 3.3% estimate. The drop in gas prices outweighed by a rise in the cost of food and shelter. So does today's action suggest a shift in the market's focus, Guy? It's interesting. You know, the S&P closes flat, I get it. And Lori has some thoughts on this, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear. But what I took away from today was the move in the bond market was, again, extraordinary in a word. Yields open on the lows, spent the rest of the day rallying to basically the highs. I don't think that augurs particularly well. Now, I think it was last week we talked about Bill Ackman, at least in the short term, ringing the bell in terms of his bond call. He was getting short bonds, thinking yields were going higher. That top ticked it for about a week. But if 10-year yields start to meaningfully go through four and a quarter percent, I think that's extraordinarily problematic for the market. So I didn't answer your question, but the bond market spoke volumes today, Mel. Yeah, Lori? I agree. I mean, that was one of the first things I checked when I was trying to put the puzzle together. And I, I go back to the CPI report. It was a good print. I, don't, I didn't learn anything here that we didn't already know. And I think the benefit, right, of inflation moderating and the Fed going on pause should be to boost the growth trade. Bond yields spiking are not going to permit that. And I think that's a tired trade that's due for a breather anyway. Yeah. Karen, what'd you make it today? I didn't know what to make of it today, to be honest. So we saw that data. It was slightly cooler, which was nice, but not wildly, right? So I didn't understand that 400 plus point reaction. And I kind of, I, I get that some things had bounced, right? So the cues bounced. The cues have had a really rough go in the last couple of weeks. So that sort of made sense to me. Why the, why the yield started to move so much at the end of the day? I mean, that we were at 394 and we closed at 410 on the 10 year. Yeah. That was sort of surprising to me. Um, I, I'm short the IGV. Um, that was up a little bit today, but it's had a rough go, which, which if you're short is good, but I am long things that are having a rough go. So I didn't know what to make of it. You can make an argument that this cooler is better, that the Fed is done, or recession, maybe, even, even though we seem to think now there will no, not be a recession. So I was confused by the whole day, to be honest. 
We've had multiple different conversations in the last week about Treasury yields and why they could be moving higher for technical reasons in addition to, you know, so Treasury refunding schedule, Fitch, other dynamics, foreign central banks less buying, uh, maybe inflation in Japan, Japanese central banks certainly buying less Treasuries. It's it's a combination of also you had a CPI number that, as we've all said, was was pretty solid. Um, if you look at the 12 month annualized, you're kind of at three percent, three point two. But at some point you saw below the surface, there's a lot of stuff in that inflation number that doesn't get any better anytime soon. So owners equivalent rent dynamics and things. that. So is the best of, of the headline CPI behind us for now? That's kind of what it felt like. And you bring it back to a market that's been kind of directionless. And I realize let's not pick on the market. It was rock and rolling for a long time. So we're talking about 10 days of, of some, some, some choppiness. But when Apple is still now clinging to that 100-day, in other words, we, we talked about Apple a few days ago. And, yeah, it rallied and it took, it took it off the headline. But it's still right there at a very key level. And then volatility in the underlying market. There's a couple different charts. I don't know if we have the one uh, that, that just shows even over the last five days. We went um, – we had 132 two days in the calendar year of 22, which I've often said is like the best uh, you know, trading market I've ever seen in my career. This year, there's only been 32 of those days where you've had these 1% moves. So that was 132 times last year we had either a plus or a minus 1% move in the S&P. It was the fourth largest uh, you know, sample set we've seen of that occurrence since, uh, I think, 1950. This year, only 32. In the last six trading days, we've had, we've had seven of these moves, up or down 1%. And today, as we've all said, you had that CPI number. And from the peak of the kind of, hey, this is a pretty good number, the jobless claims number looked like also the labor market's weakening a little bit, um, S&P fell 140 basis points, you know, intraday today. And so there's more vol out there. Triple Qs, as we've all said, haven't really, you know, re-inspired themselves. The broadening of the market, we all know, is, is could be somewhat limited mm-hmm. um, if especially, you know, we're going to talk about Ford and some of the industrials that don't right. look so good. Yeah, I mean, I agree that we didn't really learn anything from this <clears throat> CPI report, but what it did underscore was that the consumer is still facing the pressures from the things that they have to spend on every day. Groceries rose, utilities were up, gasoline was higher, rent is higher. Those are all the things that, you know, even if wages are getting better, they're still paying more. And so you're not feeling that relief as much. No, and that's something we talked about last night briefly, the fact that consumers seem to be fighting inflation with adding to credit, right, adding the debt load. I mean, we talked about it last night, credit card debt now meaningfully through a trillion dollars. None of these things are particularly good with interest rates where they are, which is why I think there's going to be a problem going down the line. And again, bond volatility is back. And in terms of inflation, yes, cooler, good, except now as we get into September, now things get more difficult. And I'll say it again, I'm not suggesting I'm right, but I do think there's going to start to be a reacceleration of inflation. And I think the Fed knows that, which is why they've been as hawkish as they've been. Yeah. So when people say this is going to be it, the Fed's done. What do you think, Lori? I think that's the narrative for now. When I talk to my rate strategy team, they're like, okay, you know, there's been a a coalescence around September pricing, right? So they think we're in this boring Fed phase for a while, but that may not last forever. And I think to Guy's point, we have to be mindful that the inflation data may take an ugly turn at some point. The Fed is reserving optionality. So we are probably done with the Fed debate for a little while, but I don't think we can count it out entirely. Yeah. And what does that do, Karen? The Fed all of a sudden turns hawkish again or, or the data well that, that would us. be the hawkish as opposed to we got you know 25 basis points left that would sort of be okay hawkish would would be bad for a lot of reasons obviously the market likes the we're done narrative or close to done 
there's been a big rally on that they're getting near done. Even as yeah. they continue to raise, it was like, well, we're still, we're closer. So I think that would be reversed somewhat. Um, and then I, I don't know. I think I do like the broadening out of the market, though. I do think that's good because tech has just been the only game in town. I like when there's other games in town. So that I, I feel good about. But uh, I am confused, I got to say. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're again at one of these places where the market, if you look at Fed fund futures, and we've all, you know, we've talked about this for the last year and a half, that they're not really accurate. They move around a lot. But right now, Fed fund futures out one year have 80 basis points of rate cuts. And, and you know, based upon the inflation data we had here and all what we're saying here is there's, there's, like the, the Fed is stuck um, and the Fed has to toe the line. So uh, I think a market that has rallied on uh, peak rates, peak Fed, peak dollar, peak inflation um, at some point runs out of, you know, this excitement. And you have to get back to the reality that rates stay higher for longer. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just not good for equities. All right. Well, Wells Fargo sees a little progress on inflation ahead. Mike Schumacher is the firm's head of macro strategy. He joins us here at the NASDAQ. Michael, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Melissa. I thought it was a perfect time to bring you into this conversation because you actually think that we've seen peak rates pretty much. And we may have seen it last week. We did see the big surge, though, today. And I'm wondering if you sort of rethink that narrative. No, not really. I mean, it's one day, big deal, frankly. And if you think about it, I I believe the big move today was predicated by Treasury supply. We had the announcement last week. It was high. Everyone knows that. Ten-year auction yesterday, pretty big, went okay. Thirty-year auction, big again, didn't go so well. But the thing about Treasury supply is it's very predictable. The next news out of the Treasury is not until November 1st with the next announcement. Yes, there will be auctions, but I think the market can deal with that. So, I wouldn't call today a one-off, but today was really the, the combination of a few things coming together. So to me, it's, it's normal volatility. Yes, rate volatility is high, but today is not crazy in that context. So when you say we've seen peak rates, we've seen peak rates, but they stay close to peak? Or we've seen peak rates and they start coming down? We think longer-term rates actually come down a fair bit. And it's really interesting. If you think about and look at historical Fed cycles, and I get it, this one's different. But still, I think it might be different in a more accelerated way. Typically, there's a pretty big rally in the bond market. Starts right around the time of that last hike. People don't wait. And we think the 10-year Treasury is going to 350 or lower by the end of the year, which seems like a big move today, but I think that's very attainable. So that's great for equities? Should be good for equities, but we have lots of equity gurus here today. I'll defer to you all. But as far as bonds go, we think that's a pretty substantial move. So what? So 3.5% in 10 years suggests a re-steepening of the yield curve, I would imagine. But... There's this notion, and if you, I've read a lot about it, it's the re-steepening when risk assets start to do their worst. Is that a concern at all? It's really interesting, Guy. When you think about the slope of the curve, in the early days after the last Fed hike, everything seems to come down together and yield. So maybe the two-year doesn't really quite keep pace with the 10-year, but it's pretty close. So I'd say for the next three-plus months, we don't really see a big reshaping of the curve. We think it's going to be more of a, almost a parallel shift for a while. So. Curve shape, I think that's a topic probably three, four, five months out. So let me ask you, the front end of the curve, though, I mean, how, do you, how does this fit in at five and change still? It seems to be pretty sticky. It and is a lot, sticky. a lot of issuance coming. Yeah, a ton of issuance. I agree with that. And Treasury is really intent on even letting that T-bill number go higher as far as the percentage of outstanding and all that good stuff. But the front end is basically hostage to Jay Powell right now. So... The next big data point for the front end, it's not PPI tomorrow. You can all sleep in. It doesn't matter. But wait for Powell at Jackson Hole in a couple weeks. That's the message people will care about. And I think that will drive the front end for quite some time. So we at Wells think it will be pretty sticky for a while. 
What do you think happens with, I mean, what we've seen is some very tough labor negotiations, uh, big union wins. I mean, I think there's a, the average driver at UPS will now make $170,000 a year. Good well, for them. Pretty good. Guy, you left With too that. early, man. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I paved I, the way. <laughs> you, I, you are considered a hero in Thank this hallowed I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but that just shows you how this could still be an inflationary force. Do you think the Fed has to be then harder than we may even think, given CPI, just because wages will be so sticky? It's a really good point, Melissa. I suspect the Fed looks at that factor and nearshoring or onshoring or whatever and says these things all boost inflation. So that run rate is going to be higher than it was back in 2018 or 2019. Mm -hmm. So we have to be more vigilant and keep rates higher for longer than we did then. But the problem for Jay Powell was when he makes that point, people don't believe him. The bond market says, well, if you're done hiking, surely the next ease is going to be pretty soon and you see a big bid for duration. So it's a really tough message for him to get out. Michael, how about the dollar in the mix on all this? Because if the, if the Fed is, is seemingly done, they've at least done everything they can to signal. I, I argue we've had an 11-year bull market run. Um, we're seeing the end get back to those, you know, those all-time lows, but uh, nominally higher against the dollar. Any call on the dollar in the middle of this? Because you're, you're talking about a backdrop where you, you're kind of feeling that yields are moving down with some stability that's at least leading to a bit of a bond market rally. Dollar seems to be fighting a lot of this stuff. We've actually become more positive than the dollar, Tim, and it's interesting. When you think about the Fed, yeah, the Fed's about done. But in the last month or so, we've had the European Central Bank sound a lot less hawkish. Bank of England sound much less hawkish. Bank of Japan probably just confused, but still, as they when are. you put it all together, it seems to us that on balance, the overall mismatch, let's say, between the Fed and other central banks has come in. And on top of that, data in the U.S. are pretty decent. Data overseas have been deteriorating. Mm -hmm. You saw the, the news on China, obviously. So... We think that actually bodes pretty well for the dollar, despite 145, give or take, on dollar yen. Laurie, I'm curious when you hear Michael talk, I mean, let's say the call for 3.5%, which seems to really stick out to yeah. is that definitely good for equities? You know, it's, it's actually what's baked into our valuation model right mm -hmm. now, because we've been looking at consensus forecasts across the street for things like yields and inflation, and it's been around kind of that 3.5% market year-end for a while. And that should give you kind of a 21, 22 type PE multiple in the market if you, you know, take our back test that goes back to the 60s. So I think it is positive. You know, I think it is positive for those growth stocks that have been a little bit weaker in here trying to find their footing. I mean, my question for you, though, actually, is if we get to that 3.5 at the end of the year and the Fed kind of stays on pause. Um, we're kind of getting to that point, right, where 2023 doesn't matter as much anymore, and we start thinking about 2024. And I'm just curious what your take is so far. Yeah, that's been really interesting to see the markets pricing for the Fed next year. It's been super yeah. volatile. So back in early May, three months ago, the market was priced for 175 basis points of cuts next year. Got down to as low as 80. It's been sort of bouncing around low hundreds since then. A lot is going to be dictated by really the path of the data, because at the end of the day, that's what the Fed can't control very well. So I think whatever Jay Powell says matters a lot, but two, three, four, five months out, it's going to be the data path. So if inflation behaves itself, if we get a few more prints light today that are benign, frankly, then you could imagine maybe some cuts late next year or middle of next year. But if it does sort of flatline, I think that makes it a much tougher call on the Fed. What do you think Jay Powell needs to do at Jackson Hole? I suspect what he'll do is say something like this, Melissa. We've done a lot of good work. Inflation's down a bunch, which it is. You still have a lot of that impact yet to come through the pipeline, lags in policy, that sort of thing. 
We have to be vigilant. We have to keep our the same eye on the ball. Old. Yes. We're not going to get any major reset. We're not going to get any major like walking no. away from 2% target or I don't anything think so. no. intriguing or interesting. Or I mean, last year was amazing, right? He gave an eight-minute talk, left, and the market went wild. Equities yeah. were down three-plus percent that day. I can't imagine something like that happens again. All right. It's too bad. I know. It was fun, right? <laughs> I We're before. just talking about volatility. <laughs> You'd have it. Yeah. It'd be a crazy day. All right. Michael, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Michael Schumacher. Well, it, percent. What happens then with equities? Well, it, there's two ways I think about this. We're talking about a, an equity market that's run 30 plus percent on the S&P since that October. I mean, I, I, I feel like this is such a great time for asset allocation and to be thinking differently than people have in the past after this kind of a move in the equity market. And I hear about a rally in the bond market, and the rates markets, and I hear of a lot of investors that and I have investors that want to be locking in rates for longer. So that move out the yield curve and some of that, I think, is something to be thinking about. I, I, I think equities like three and a half more than like four and a half. Yeah. But I don't think equities get a rally on this as much as, um, and again, I think if anything, this is going to be that case where bad news, which is good news for bonds in terms of lower yields, is probably not going to be great for equities. Right. When we first started doing this show, they told us, don't make, they brought us in a room, mm-hmm. said don't make people's eyes glaze over. So oh, hopefully, that's the way because we do that every night. But Tim mentioned dollar yen, and quickly, I'm not saying you should trade it, but in October of last year, dollar yen made an all-time high 152 or so january 125 this stealth rally in the dollar the yen weakness is absolutely something to watch and that will correlate with the bond market and will correlate with risk assets so keep your eye on dollar yen because i think that's going to tell the tale melms coming up shoes handbags and the luxury mega merger today's retail deal hopes to send shockwaves through the fashion industry what you need to know about tapestry and capri's team up that's next plus baba buoyed Shares jumping after a strong earnings report this morning. So should you add this one to your cart? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. It was very clear that Capri represented a a unique and and, uh, strategic fit for our portfolio. It builds in this resilient uh, category that we play in, a $200 billion category for accessories, footwear, and apparel, luxury accessories, footwear, and uh, apparel with complementary brands. So that's important. Welcome back to Fast Money. That was Tapestry CEO speaking to Squawk on the Street about her company's $8.5 billion takeover of Capri. 
the luxury retail company behind brands like Michael Kors, Versace, and Jimmy Choo. Capri shares turning in their best ever session following this announcement. Well, Tapestry, the owner of Coach, and Kate Spade fell nearly 16%. Karen? Yes. You are happy. I was happy. I was delighted. Absolutely <laughs> delighted. Um, but surprised for a couple of reasons. I get the idea of putting these two companies together. They are very similar. You can see some synergies. But the part that I'm really sort of surprised by is clearly it wasn't working at Coors, right? Mm-hmm. So they had these three different brands, Michael Coors, uh, Versace, and Jimmy Choo. And they have tried for several years now to really see, can we get any kind of luxury premium for this company? And the answer has been a resounding no. no. We're giving you a mid-single-digit PE multiple. And so interestingly, Tapestry came along and bid all cash. It's surprising to me that they didn't want to do any stock, or did Coors not want stock? Did they not believe in the idea of this thing merging together? I don't know. Hmm. That's um, so the all stock. I mean, the all cash rather. It's a fair amount of debt. It's not. It's not insurmountable, but it's a fair amount of debt for Tapestry. They think they'll be able to get some synergies and pay it off. Um, they don't have. They have, there's no financing condition to the deal. So they got to come up with the money, no matter how bad the financing markets are, when they're prepared to close. I don't think there's any antitrust issue here. Retail is so giant. It's just I don't quite get how it. it didn't work at Coors, but Tapestry can make it work. I'm a, I'm a tad skeptical. I don't know if I had heard uh, that Tapestry was, people had a lot of long Tapestry short Capri that maybe was turned around today. It didn't look like there was a lot of short interest in Capri, so I'm sort of surprised by that. I understand why Tapestry is down. This is a right. higher level of risk yeah. with all this debt. They're gonna be four times debt to EBITDA. That's not great. They could pay it down, but it's, I, I don't know. It, it sort of hamstrings them. And um, so I'm not surprised that it's down. However, I'm delighted with the entire thing. And you are I am gone out. from the, this morning, gone. Yeah. Well, it, it, what I don't understand is why pay, you know, eight and a half times EV EBITDA when it was trading at five and a half? Like, wh- why did they need to pay that kind premium. of a premium when, in fact, the stock has had a chance to do and prove wrong people for the reasons that you said it's been struggling? So. I guess I don't get that. And, you have and, to, yeah, go ahead. And I, I hear, I hear um, yes, it gets tapestry more into the luxury, but as you're saying, there's still a lot of overlap, and that's kind of what I'm hearing is really the benefit. It's $200 million of cost savings and synergies they achieve uh, over the next three years. That's not a reason to do a deal. And it seems like the ability to generate free cash flow and pay down this larger you know, kind of debt is, is that story that is, is what you get, but it's almost that you're creating the narrative after you've kind of created this. But what, I mean, what is the narrative here? Because it feels like this consumer, if they're trying to get the caring valuation, the LVMH, yeah. the, they, they, it's, they're completely, right exactly. Yeah. The shopper is a completely different shopper who buys Michael Kors or Jimmy Choo handbag versus a Louis Vuitton. The price points are completely different and the demographic is completely different. So I don't know if they could ever, can they ever I achieve just, that? So if that is not the end goal, then what well, is? If... If they can do, they, they talk about direct-to-consumer being somewhere where they could be more, uh, they could make it be more efficient. Mm-hmm. They talk about um, there could be, think about it, they're both in wholesalers in a Bloomingdale's, right. in, a, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a Nordstrom's or all of those. Um, maybe they get a little more power there. Maybe they get a little more power being at Simon Property Group malls and they can right. negotiate better. Maybe they can um, 
facilitate, they can do fulfillment better. A lot of different things. I don't know how the multiple changes, though, um, right. how they get, but, but, Tapestry's multiple was better than Capri's. Capri's was six. Theirs was, I don't know, 12 before okay. today. So Wouldn't that have they, been better to use stock then, not cash? Yes, but Unless why they doesn't want stock, stock? Which is what Karen's I, saying. I, yes. I, I understand right. that, but they should yeah. still yes. the suspicious get it. thing. That, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, John Idle, the CEO, they had tried to get a new CEO. He was sort of ready to retire. That didn't happen. I, this is a graceful excerpt for him. All right. Meantime, fellow luxury name Ralph Lauren falling in today's session despite a top and bottom line beat before the bell. Options traders are betting there's more downside ahead. Mike Co joins us now with the action. Mike. Yeah, this is not a name that trades a huge amount of options on average, but it did trade more than four times its average daily put volume today. And one of the trades we saw was a purchase of 250 of the SEP 120 puts. Buyer paid a dollar 80, so that's basically buying downside on 25,000 shares worth of Ralph Lauren. They are betting that the stock could revisit three-month lows. Mike, thank you, Mike Co. For more options action, tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Alibaba's big quarter. The Chinese tech giant seeing shares jump after its latest earnings report. So is it time to Baba buy? Plus, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's an electric plane. Red Hot Archer Aviation is out with results. We're diving into the numbers and its new deal with the Air Force with the company's CEO. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. A Baba bump in today's session. Shares jumping more than 4% after the Chinese e-commerce giant reported a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Revenue growing by 14% year-on-year, the biggest annual percent increase in sales since the September 2021 quarter. The company also highlighting plans to invest further into AI development. Mm. That stock is up almost 13% this year. Tim. Well, there's there's different reasons to be excited here. I mean, the AI thing, uh, we don't need that. We need we just need the core business to, to come back alive. The, the reorg seems to be driving some efficiency, certainly helped on margin. And, and the fact that there is a reorg and that there is the ability to spin off assets and that there is a green light to be able to value these different pieces is why I own the stock and why I've been adding to it. And and this is good multiple wise. These numbers were solid. And, and, and China as a macro headwind noise to me. Um, that's not why I would be trading the stock or trading out of it. And we've seen the stock trade that way. I think you stay here. Yeah. Lori, China stocks. So, you know, I, I feel I'm a U.S. investor, right? But I, I do feel like we had a moment earlier this year, really kind of early 2Q, where China, you know, kind of hating the U.S., loving Europe, loving China, was very much in vogue and very consensus. And then all of a sudden we saw the dial swing very quickly. And I feel like it's a little bit too fast to say we've gotten too pessimistic on China. I've gone through a whole reporting season where it's just been one negative comment after another, but I still feel like we're in the process of pulling people out of that consensus China trade. So I'm probably sidelines. 
In the spring, something changed. I mean, this is a stock for three years was making lower highs, lower lows consistently. And it changed February, March, April of this year when it stopped making lower lows. And this move now suggests, I think, you have room probably up to 125, 130. Now, it's still probably a broken stock in the context of the whole all-time high. But there's a move coming here in Alibaba, and we've seen moves like this before, Melms. Karen, does this tempt you as a person who used to own Alibaba? Yeah, I, it sort of does. I mean, I just if you look at its evaluation, yeah. it is, you know, it, it's outstanding for a company this big to trade this cheap and have so many parts that have more value even yet to be unlocked. Um, however, having lived through that sort of first, wow, this, things could go very, you know, awry in a. It would, they could take this company yes. off the map. They, they absolutely yeah. can. So that, so that. And they could have, but they didn't. Yep. And they could and they have, put it back on. And yep. they put it back yep. on. Um, I, I mean, so that makes me afraid. Makes me afraid enough to say, you know what? I'm just going to be out. It's um, I, right now. It seems we're a little less heated, China-U.S. relations. But would it be shocking at all to see it heat up again? Well, the trade limits, I mean, the, the announcements over the last couple of days out of the Biden administration came in, I think, a little bit more conservative than yeah. people had expected. So, more I mean, that's in, you mean? What do you mean? So in terms of the, the, the limits on investing yeah. in China, uh-huh. and they could have been a lot Less more aggressive yes. and, yes. and they could have been more bearish. And just quickly, EM has also traded around with BABA, the whole asset class. We, you know, a week and a half ago, everyone was like, EM to the moon. I was right there. And I still think it's going higher. Um, BABA is a microcosm and the charts are very similar. But some of that, the data coming out of China has been surprisingly bad. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Coming up, electricity in the air, or Ooh. at least they hope so. One huh. electric aircraft maker out with results. And we're talking with the CEO after the break. But the head of Archer Aviation has to say about FAA approval and when we can expect to plug in and fly. That interview when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks jumping immediately after this morning's soft inflation data, but closing well off the highs of the day. The three major indices, though, did manage to stay in the green just barely. Shares of Novo Nordisk, meantime, falling after an earnings miss. The pharma company raising full-year guidance but lowering supply of its weight loss in diabetes drugs, particularly the ones at the lowest doses, so the beginning doses for patients. That stock finishing lower by nearly 3%. Meantime, we're watching shares of Archer Aviation after the bell. The stock surging after announcing an investment from Boeing. The company also reporting quarterly earnings. Our Phil LeBeau is bringing us a first on CNBC interview with the CEO, Adam Goldstein. Phil, take it away. Thank you, Melissa. Adam, let's start first off. We're not going to talk about the Q2 results, which was an adjusted EBITDA loss of $76 million. Not that your re- operations aren't important, but I think the guidance in terms of what you guys are announcing uh, with regard to the midnight beginning flight testing and this round of fundraising that includes Boeing, does this $215 million that you've just announced that you've raised, does that get you through to the manufacturing on a mass scale for the midnight? Yeah, thanks, Phil. I appreciate the questions. If we even just take a step back here, over the last 90 days, you've seen the FAA administrator, Billy Nolan, step down and come join Archer as our chief safety officer. He then saw the DOD come out and award Archer with the largest contract they've ever given to an eVTOL company. And then just recently today, we announced that Boeing is going to be our latest strategic partner and making an investment. So it really has been a great period for us. With also, in addition with the capital that we've taken in, it really does put us in a position not only just to get to market, but also to start really accelerating a lot of our commercial operations. So now you want to accelerate 
getting to market, which is supposed to be in the 25-26 time range. You mentioned Boeing. They are now an investor in Archer. You guys were suing Boeing uh, with regard to WISC. That suit has been dropped, and they are also going to be working with you in terms of developing the autonomous technology that you hope to ultimately put into the midnight. Is that correct? Yeah, we are really excited to be partnered with the greatest aviation company in the world. The partnership is going to start with collaboration around autonomy. Boeing and WISC have extensive, I mean, probably the most experience in flight autonomy in the world. And the goal is to be able to leverage that technology in future variants of our vehicle. Um, but it is also exciting that Boeing is coming in as an investor in Archer as well. Let's talk about the midnight winning uh, the special airworthiness certification from the FAA. This essentially means that you can begin flight testing right now. Does it give you greater confidence in your flight plan to commercial service? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. So the FAA issued Archer a certificate to begin flying our midnight aircraft. This is a major milestone for Archer, but also for the industry. Now you have two companies, both Archer and Joby, as the only two companies to have this for our pre-production vehicles. So we will begin flying um, pretty much daily this fall, which puts us on our path to get the certification to allow us to start taking passengers and start commercialization in 2025. And that's going to have pilots, at least initially, correct? Realistically, are we going to see pilots uh, in the controlling the midnight, at least for the foreseeable first several years of operation? Yeah, that's right. Actually, starting at the beginning of next year, we will start our flight test for credit, which is our piloted flight test, which we'll be doing um, on a daily basis with the FAA and with the DOD. And that's how we're going to start to take the vehicles to market. So that we'll start piloted. And over time, um, as the technology advances and the regulatory framework advances, we do anticipate the industry eventually moving to a fully autonomous form of transportation. Melissa, go ahead. I think you have a question. Yeah, I do, Adam. You mentioned your, your closest direct competitor, and that would be Joby. But I think a lot of viewers at home might, might take a look at your business and see what you're doing with, with batteries and think Elon Musk. Is that a conversation that you've had? And do you think that he could potentially emerge as a competitor to you? Because he's got, you know, the supply chain in theory that could either help or compete with you. Well, the autos have actually played a pretty significant role in the industry to date. So one of Archer's biggest partners is Stellantis. And so um, Stellantis has been really involved since the beginning. And you've also seen um, Toyota as a really big partner of Joby's. So I do think Elon actually already has helped our industry significantly. And that's by helping to improve uh, where lithium-ion batteries are today. So that's really been the big unlock that's helped us today. So to the extent that uh, Elon Musk or Tesla wanted to get involved, I think it could only help just accelerate the industry even further. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Adam Goldstein, the CEO of Archer. Melissa, I'll send it back to you on a big day for Archer as the shares are surging on news that they now will be able to begin flight tests for the midnight EVTOL. Yep. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, and our thanks to Adam Goldstein, the CEO of, of Archer. Um, it's interesting that these established companies are going into this new area with investments kind of reminds you of Amazon and in, in Rivian, for example. It's not just yeah. Boeing, though. It's right. Stellantis is in. I think yeah. United. Yeah. Well, and United. I yeah. mean, and, and, yeah. and yeah. when they when they 
de-SPAC, you know, United was part of that too. And and by the way, I mean, I, you know, SPACs have been good and bad for folks coming to market. It actually did a lot to cut the valuation of this company when they were coming out. And and then SPACs just as a group have been torpedoed. So um, I, I say that actually in support of the stock here because I think despite um, the SPAC dynamic, I think it's it's obviously this is a fundamental change. Yeah, for Boeing, it's an interesting new new sort of area potentially. Vertical takeoff and land—it's really interesting stuff, right? Yeah. Twenty-mile trips. I mean, ten minutes Ta- between trips. This is trips. taxi. This is this, this is, is taxi kind of material. This is like Jetson stuff. And, and it's mean, and it's know, actually I mean, going to happen probably the back half of next year. So I mean, I can't speak about the stock because as Tim mentioned, it's had an interesting run. But this isn't going away. And Boeing making some inroads into this—I think it's it's fascinating stuff for sure. Yeah. Coming up, Ford and GM slamming the brakes today. What is causing the traffic jam in these stocks? The details in the trade next and later. All eyes on the IPO pipeline. Should we expect a surge of new offerings this year? Our next guest sees things heating up. Stick around. More Fast Money ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money Buzzkill on Big Auto. Ford and General Motors slipping again today as concerns mount over contract negotiations with the company's union workers. Both stocks have been in post-earnings decline since reporting better-than-expected results last month, even raising full-year outlooks. So why are investors pumping the brakes here? The deadline is approaching. It's September 14th. There's a lot of mudslinging going on. You know, union leaders calling company leaders liars and things like that right in the headlines. I mean... All out in the open. It is. Uh, You know, the UPS negotiation seemed far more tame, and you had Carol Tomei saying, we will get to a deal. Yeah, so that's weighing on this for sure. It's a lot of leverage there, so you can't help but think the likelihood of them using it has to be high, right? So there's that. Um, There's this, you know, more sort of wrench in, you know, the gears of getting finally for GM, getting their production up to, it's got to be a lot higher than where it is now. They're talking about 100,000 cars for, was it last six months of this year? I forget exactly, but it wasn't anywhere near where it should be. There's that. So frustrating, though, $1 of ICE earnings is not worth anything close to what it should be. But if that dollar were to go away, you can bet that the multiple on it, without it being there, would be so much greater than the multiple given to it when it is there. (laughs) That's frustrating. I am still long. But... They're running out. Well, the margin story here is is really what you've been focused on. They both had great margin on a relative basis. I mean, they had margin accretion, and they showed that actually they they and Ford is all about this efficiency uh, binge that Jim Farley and company have been on. And I and I, I believe them. In other words, they recognize uh, how important this is to the company at a time when the costs attached to EV are so critical. So I, you know, I, I've been long and wrong. Uh, GM mostly and some Ford, and I I stay there. I mean, I can sleep with these balance sheets, no problem. Yeah. So I tend to look at industries as opposed to stocks, but the auto and auto components related areas have actually been looking pretty good on our earnings revision indicators. And they're sort of in the early days of recovery, still weak versus other areas in consumer and industrials. But they kind of fit in nicely to my idea of a catch-up trade in the market, kind of looking at things with shorter-term issues that are problematic. And I think this does feel short-term in nature. I know there's a lot of concern about strikes and labor getting more power and the impact on margins down the road, but I think that will be resolved and it's bigger than these companies as well. So. I'm sort of in your camp. Coming up, Ready, Set, IPO. New listings are picking up in 2023, and one top strategist sees a bigger recovery on deck. We'll get his two cents ahead. And our own Brian Sullivan is live at the Tin Building in New York City, gearing up for a special last call tonight. They let you out, Brian. 
They let me out, and it's a consumer. They let me in here, too. It's a consumer focus. We've got a great guest lineup. We're going to hit a lot of stuff about the economy, inflation, travel, housing, tourism. Don Peebles, hotelier Egan Schrager. We've got a cast of thousands. We've got, by the way, beautiful fish and a beautiful chef. See you tonight, 7 p.m., last call at the Tin Building. Welcome back to Fast Money. Early gains for some of this year's uh, biggest IPOs are giving investors hope for a bigger recovery in new transactions. The Renaissance IPO ETF has surged over 30% this year, but has been cut in half from its closing high made in February 2021. For more on the IPO market's next move, let's bring in Seth Rubin, head of U.S. Equity Capital Markets at Stiefel. Seth, great to have you with us. Why do you think there's going to be a pickup in the back half? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Um, look, we've started to see some real signs of improvement in the new issue market, and I think it's driven by a couple of things. One, we've had investors just return to some confidence and some conviction in what they're buying. And two, frankly, we've had a really high-quality cohort of companies that have not only come to market with the right story, but have been priced right, have actually put together the right syndicate, have de-risked the transaction as much as they can, and you've started to see those deals perform. So I think we're going to now start to see a few more transactions. Every month, you'll get a couple more deals. You'll start to build some momentum. And I think that really opens up the market as we head into 2024. If interest rates stay higher for longer, Seth, does that lessen investor appetites for new issuance? There's no question. I think interest rates are probably the biggest headwind to the IPO market right now, not only because the investors have more opportunities in terms of where they're going to put their money and what that risk-free rate of return is, but because it affects the core business of, you know, of most of the companies that are looking to come public. You know, you, you talked about the peak of the renaissance IPO market and where that index peaked out, you look back to the end of 2021, you had free money, right? And you had the ability for companies to spend in perpetuity for growth, and you had a real fear of missing out from investors. So all of those things lined up along with peak valuations. You have none of those things now, right? So the companies that are coming public are going to come public with a view that we're going to have to be able to perform and outperform the market in a higher interest rate environment. So I guess my question would be, um, why now? Um, you know, I've always understood in the past when volatility was coming down, markets are rocking, and investor confidence is starting to come back, and CEO confidence, that's when you start to really see the deals come up. And the, the high quality of the pipeline has been there for a while. So what's changing right now that you think is, is really going to open the floodgates? Yeah. So I don't think we're in a market that opens up right now. Right. I think we're going to start to see the beginnings of those uh, of those openings. And this is something that's going to take a couple of quarters to build. Right. I, I would compare it to if you look at the last two major disruptions in the financial market, you can go back to the uh, the, the, the dot com uh, bust in 20 and 20 or 2000 and 2001. And then you can look at the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And what you'll see is coming out the back of those, you've had a couple of quarters where you've had a handful of IPOs, cohort by cohort, that have opened up the market, which led the way to a much bigger, uh, a much, much bigger cycle. So, you know, I think we're still in a rebuilding mode. I think we've got a couple of quarters where we're going to see some successful IPOs. Look, the buy side, they're very smart, right? People are choosy. They've got the ability to say, I want everything right now, right? I want high quality companies. I want growth. I want unit economics. I want profitability. I will be very selective of what I buy. And if we can get those deals to work over time, that opens up the market. And I think as we get into 2024 and certainly into the back half of 24, we've got the underpinnings of a really, um, you know, a, a really well laid out market. Will there be certain sectors that lead the way in terms of new issues? 
Yeah. I think we're going to get back to the traditional growth sectors, right? Right now, you've seen some esoteric deals and you've come across things that maybe are a little bit less sexy, right? You've seen some energy and you've seen some insurance and you've seen some other things. Biotech, right? We've just, we've got this unbelievable cohort of companies in biotech that are driving change in the market, bringing products faster than they've ever brought before. Technology, where you've just had this massive dearth, right? You haven't seen a lot of technology IPOs now in 20, 24 months, right? So you've got a huge backlog there. And I think in high growth consumer, right, where you've got some brands and you've got some companies that were really built for the new economy that investors are excited about. All right, Seth, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Seth Rubin of Stiefel. Do you think that's going to happen? I do, actually. Mm -hmm. I do. I think if rates are steady, that's good. Even if they're higher, that's good. So I don't know, maybe something like a NASDAQ would really do well on that. Yeah. Okay. NASDAQ made an acquisition June 14th at Denza. They, now they have visibility. They have a recurring revenue stream. I don't think the market's giving them their just due. And Karen's right. NASDAQ at $51, I think, is too cheap in this environment. I think there's two dynamics here. One is that you've seen the stabilization in markets, et cetera. Um, I think the credit market's stability here is, is a key part of this as well. Uh, the, the other side of the, of the coin is I realize there are, you know, Seth talked about different cohorts, there are different sectors, whatever you're looking at. But at 20 times forward, the market's not cheap. Now, maybe that's great for companies that want to come to market. Um, I, I think it's, it's, you know, in anything, it's probably a bit of a headwind. It gets back to the investors that are being a lot more prudent about what they're going to buy because, you know, coming into this, they know things aren't cheap. All right. Up next, final trades. trade time. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. PayPal. Um, a lot of people have been laughing at them over the last couple of years. I think stabilization in the client base. I think the margins look better. I think this is a longer term recovery. PayPal. Karen Feinerman. Yes. Mine is Disney. I do think it could have been a sell the rumor, buy the news, bad quarter. Maybe this was the bottom for Disney. I started buying today. Wow. Yeah, look at that close. Let's hope. Uh, Lori Calvacina. I like healthcare stocks. I think the market could be in for a little bit of bumpiness near term. It's probably your most reasonably valued defensive good earnings revision trends. I read a lot of transcripts last week, and healthcare even seems to be managing to weather China pretty well. So I'll stick with healthcare. You know, Melms, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of FASMA. You'd like to give them all a shout out. Of course. If only we could but do that to every single one. There's some that deserve it more than others. Well, because <laughs> one, last night, one of them threw a no-no in Major League Baseball. That's Michael Lorenzen of the Philadelphia Phillies. Congrats, so. Michael. Congrats, okay. Michael. Thank you for watching. Yeah, just saying. Nice you should be pitching. Do you have a trade? International oh. business machines. All right. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.